Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. From quips about a slip and sue, raised eyebrows at claiming workers' comp, and rolled eyes at ambulance-chasing lawyers, there is often judgment unfairly cast at both those who hurt themselves at work and their advocates. The world of personal injury can be difficult to navigate, especially at a painful time, which is why I am so happy to have Bree Canusta, founder of Brave Legal and a Victorian personal injury expert with more than 20 years' experience, to help me navigate this often painful experience. Bree, Firstly, when would I seek compensation for personal injury? Such a good question to kick off. If you've been injured in a public place, at work, at someone's home, and you think that it occurred because something was negligent or it wasn't safe, or perhaps it should have been fixed, that's a really good starting point for when you should make some inquiries about whether or not there's compensation available to you. What if I was in the wrong? Well, it depends then if the way you were injured might be captured by schemes that are set up in every state to still give you compensation. So there's two main schemes that I'm talking about. One is a work cover scheme and the other is a transport accident scheme. So if it's your fault and you're injured at work or you were injured on the road, there still is some type of compensation that you can access and we call that a no-fault benefit. Do you have examples of cases that you've seen in your career that when you've looked at it, you've thought, oh, this is, this is going to be a tough one to, to get compensation for? It's really common these days that when people are injured at work, that they've had a pre-existing condition of some kind. So particularly people who are working in manual labour or factories or their tradesmen, it's not uncommon that they've got a shoulder injury or a back injury And if they are then injured at work, they're often really worried that the fact that they've been injured in the past is going to mean they can't access compensation. But the reality is even an aggravation of a pre-existing injury can still give you an entitlement to compensation, provided you can make that connection between the aggravation and the workplace, if we just talk about work. So sometimes we've had cases where people have had really bad back injuries in the past and they've sneezed at work or they've bent over to pick up their lunch that's fallen on the ground and their back injury has all of a sudden come back with a vengeance. Those cases are more difficult to really show that this aggravation is related to the work that the person was doing. So when I hear those types of examples, I have a little bit of a worry about whether or not that type of claim could be accepted. But, you know, often a little bit of digging and a little a few questions into what that person's work is often reveals that they do quite manual work or quite repetitive work where they're frequently having to lift or bend. And whilst that sneeze may be the one thing that made the disc injury go bang, it could actually be a situation where it's been a grumbling back and the work 
duties have caused this back to be put under quite a bit of pressure until something really innocuous creates the pain. I'm interested in this idea of repetitive injury and I'm thinking, say an example of an office, you know, like I click my mouse a lot, like I type (laughs) on my phone a lot. How minor can a repetitive injury be? Well, provided you can prove that connection between that mouse clicking and that wrist injury, that carpal tunnel syndrome, for example, that might have occurred as a result of that, you can seek compensation for it. Carpal tunnel injuries or wrist injuries or repetitive RSI injuries, they used to be called repetitive strain injuries. That's right, RSI, yep. (laughs) Yeah, they were really common in the 70s and 80s. We had these pools of typists and who would type all day. And that's where we started to see people getting, and predominantly women, getting these wrist injuries and injuries into their hands because of that repetitive strain. But we're seeing them come back now and it is because of this click culture and these and the use of technology at such an increased rate and people's ergonomics not being as fantastic as perhaps they should. And even Kim Kardashian got carpal tunnel syndrome from the way she held her <laughs> hand. Um, and she had it to happen do... to anyone. Exactly. It can happen to Kim. It can happen to you. <laughs> so it can still happen. It's happening now, those types of injuries. And if it's connected to your work because you are literally on the keyboard and clicking repetitively every day, then there's a real potential to put in a work cover claim if you need to. I knew a lot of Kim Kardashian's life was very relatable to my own. <laughs> I'm interested to learn where mental health sits and if you see more cases now of mental health being the injury, not a physical injury. I think psychological injuries now are some of the more common that we see and they're certainly on the rise and with the additional pressure of the pandemic and people working from home and relying upon technology, psychological stresses have been so much more sort of prevalent and increased. And as a result, we have seen people putting in work cover claims for psychological injuries more often. Even before the pandemic, though, people were under a lot of stress and bullying claims, harassment claims were extremely common. And I won't sort of be shy to say that the claims are hard. So every employer has a work cover insurer. And if you're injured at work and you put in a claim, it goes to that insurance company. It's not a secret that those insurance companies are tough on mental health claims because they're much harder to prove, but they are so much more prevalent at the moment and people should not be reluctant to put in a claim for a psychological injury because they they can be incredibly debilitating and long-term. Is it difficult when you mention that insurers can be very tough on mental health injury? Is that also because for an employer, they might try to probe into your personal life and go, well, you got dumped recently or this bad thing happened to you outside of work. So sounds like a personal problem, not a work problem. Does that happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where you need like a good team around you to help you stay strong through this process. Yeah. When you put in a claim, on your claim form is an authority, which gives the insurance company permission to get your medical records. There's sort of, there's no escaping it. And I'm pretty confident it's in every state, but certainly in Victoria, when you lodge a work cover claim, it gives permission for the insurer to get your medical records and they read them. 
And if there are other non-work-related factors that might be related to your psychological injury, they can rely on them as being the cause of your injury and potentially reject your claim. So it's really important to have a good GP. And if you're seeing a psychologist, get your psychologist on board with the fact that you're lodging a claim because supportive reports can knock out any suggestion that this is related to your your boyfriend breaking up with you six months before or a death in the family or something like that. And if I need to bring on board external specialists to evaluate my case, so say if it's getting into the nitty gritty of, well, it's actually like you got dumped six months ago and you had a falling out with a friend and this is actually just all about you, or if it's a physical claim and I need to go to a specialist, who would pay for that if I have started a claim already? If you have been injured at work and you've lodged your claim and it's accepted, your specialist treatment will be covered by the insurer. If you've lodged your claim and it's as yet undecided and you want to get some evidence to give to the insurance company, or if it's been rejected and you want to fight that rejection, then in most cases you might need to pay for that yourself. I was reading about a case that happened in the US, which is never a good place to read about (laughs) things that happened in the criminal justice system. And it was talking about a, a lady who got injured in a home after picking up her nephew. And obviously the case got turned into this, oh my God, this woman's suing her family because, you know, she picked up her nephew the wrong way and threw out her back. But it actually turned out that the family were completely on board with it. It was just like, this was the process that you had to go through in order to get compensation. And it wasn't this big family feud over a bad pickup. Yeah. Do you ever see examples where the workplace is on board with the claim or is it typically a combative process? I usually see the employer on board or just not involved. And I'm happy with that second option too. It's really rare that your employer takes it personally and they are gearing up for a fight and they want your claim rejected. So there's an insurer that sits between you and your claim and your employer. And so the employer can't really impact whether the claim's accepted or not. It's all about what the insurer wants to do, which is a good thing because there are some dodgy employers and some mean employers out there, but they've got insurance for a reason. And so it's the insurer will make a decision based on some pretty kind of black and white criteria and the employer shouldn't have much of a say at all on this particular process, which is, yeah, as I said, it's a good thing. So perhaps making a claim, it's not as potentially damaging. Because I imagine for a lot of people, like I know I would freak out if I had to make a claim and I think, oh my God, my boss is going to hate me. <laughs> I'm done. Like I'm totally done <laughs> at this company. In your experience, do these claims damage someone's relationship with their boss or their future employment at that organisation? It's incredible, Amy, because you would think it would. And I myself have been a boss and I've had staff who have had physical injuries at work and lodged a claim and I felt all bad and I was like, oh, a claim? Is that sort of reflective of me? And and I'm a work cover lawyer and I still went through this process. <laughs> and you're still freaking out. <laughs> and I'm still a bit like, oh. But the reality and what I see more and more is that it's okay. It actually ends up okay. I'll give you one example. I acted for a police officer who had a really severe psychological injury and had been terribly bullied in the workplace. You would really think that him bringing a claim and continuing to work in that workplace would be two impossible feats. 
but we brought a claim and it was successful and he got a payout. So he brought a negligence claim in addition to those no-fault benefits we spoke about and he got his settlement and he retrained into a different part of the police force and he actually now works in the building that I work in and there's lots of police in that building and I see him get in the lift and he's with his colleagues and he's in a different section to where he originally was where he was injured. But he's there and he's happy and he's rehabilitated in a really inspirational way. But how brilliant. I just love it that I see That's him. That's a lovely I think, ending. You're in the workplace. Good on you. You're still here and your employer has obviously made a decision to support you being here and they would know what's, they, they know he brought a claim. That's no secret. So I always think of him and I think if he can do it and, and that type of employer can do it, then so can businesses and factories and other workplaces. If I believe that my company isn't following correct health and safety procedures, what are some steps I can take before that hits the fan? Good question. So in Victoria, we we know the word work cover. So work cover is the injury claims section of the Victorian Work Cover Authority, which is kind of the boss insurer. I call it the the boss insurer and underneath sits a number of insurance companies who actually do the grunt work. Another part of the Victorian Work Cover Authority is called WorkSafe and it's the safety and prosecutions and sort of well-being part of that organisation. If there are concerns in the workplace about safety, you contact, in Victoria, you contact WorkSafe. There's a similar organisation in almost every state and they can be notified and they have investigators who come out to workplaces to investigate safety breaches and employers can be prosecuted, criminally prosecuted under a different bit of legislation, not the workers' comp legislation, but an occupational health and safety piece of legislation if they are breaching that legislation and things are happening at the workplace that are unsafe. Is there any criteria that someone would have to hit in order to have their personal injury recognised as such? Yes, there are thresholds and gateways all over the place. That sounds serious. <laughs> in every, Thresholds and gateways. Yeah, there's a lot. In every yeah. state, it's a bit different. In Victoria, to access those no-fault benefits, which what I mean by that is some weekly payments because you can't work and your medical expenses. To access those, you've got to show you've suffered an injury in the course of your employment. So that's a sort of a no-brainer. If you've suffered a permanent injury and a permanent impairment and you're seeking now some lump sum compensation, so what we're talking about there might be sort of tens of thousands of dollars, then you need to show you've got a permanent injury and it gives you an impairment and it's an impairment of a certain level measured using a particular medical guide. And then if you've been injured because your employer was negligent and you want to sue your employer, and I hate kind of using that word, but we know it and it it means, you know, bring your employer to account. If you want to sue your employer for negligence in Victoria, you've got to show your injury is serious if it's physical or if it's a psychological injury, you've got to show it's severe. That's tough, but most people do meet that threshold and a, and a good lawyer will be able to tell you very early on if you've got a chance of meeting it or not. Sometimes there is this perception about the idea of workers' comp. People go, oh, it's on workers' comp. Or, and it's, there's a little bit of a innuendo suggestion that it's fraudulent and dodgy. Do you often see fraudulent claims? Like where has this idea gotten started that it's a bit dodgy and a bit fraudulent to try and claim workers' comp? It's so interesting because I've been doing workers' compensation now 
for 20 years and I've had one dodgy client. But yeah, there's this perception of, you know, at the neck brace and the person sort of limping to their medical appointment and then getting in the car and ripping off the neck brace. And and yet I've only seen it once and I acted for a young man and he was a bricklayer and he'd injured his back really badly. I saw it on the MRI and he'd had some surgery as well. And so we were trying to prove that his injury was serious so that he could sue his employer because there's a dodgy system of work the way they hauled bricks on this particular site. And he came to every appointment, like sort of struggling to walk. He had a walking stick sometimes. He's told us how his life was significantly impaired. His relationship with his partner had fallen apart. It was all a disaster. And so we had to go to court to prove his injury was serious. And he gave his evidence And then the lawyers for the insurance company were asking him some questions and then they said, watch this video. And they are the words that as a plaintiff lawyer acting for injured people, you never want to hear. Oh, no. And there on the video was him beautifully agile, building this brick fence for his uncle, hauling bricks, multiple bricks in his hand, bending, twisting that went on for two hours. It was a two-hour video. It was a two-hour video. And they're like, we'll be watching every minute of this video. (laughs) Uh, And they make you because they do want to drag out the pain. Fortunately, after the first little bit, uh, I knew it was time to have a conversation with the client and that case didn't proceed. That was it. And it was so crazy because his back was bad. And if he'd just been honest and said, look, I had a crack at this. I I built this fence for my uncle and I bet the next day he was in agony I bet yeah. there was, we could have certainly given it some real context, but nah, he fibbed and he got And he thrown. really fibbed. He really fibbed. And, <laughs> and it was so silly because he wasn't even fibbing because the injury was fake. His injury was real, but he was just trying to cover up that he was doing this. And so the case was over and it was so much work that we had done to get to that point. But A dodgy client is extremely rare and the only other occasion where I thought I was heading down that same path was when they were showing a video in court, same thing. We were trying to prove our client had a serious injury so she could sue her employer. She had a shoulder injury and she'd had surgery as well. But something was going on. We knew the insurer, the lawyers for the insurer, they didn't want to talk to us. We didn't understand why they weren't trying to settle this case. And they show a video of a person who looks like my client doing circus arts. So she's on, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they use these silks that hang from the ceiling and they kind of like wrap themselves up and then they sort of fall down. Extremely aerobic. It's extremely difficult. You're like, I mean, it looks good in that, in an you know, aerobic sense. Yeah. Like for the claim sense, this looks really bad. Really bad because she has really a sh- shoulder injury and there's her arms straight <laughs> up. She's holding <laughs> her body injury. weight. And I turn around and I say to the client, what is this? And she says, that's my twin sister. And oh, they have got all this video of her twin sister who's really fit and who lives with her. And they, of course, they look very, very similar. And the insurer thought they were onto something. And so we had to stand up and say, well, Your Honour, we think there's a misunderstanding here. 
So she wasn't dodgy. And I never thought she would be, but it was just so fabulous. And then they didn't believe she had a twin sister, so the twin sister had to come to court with her silks. <laughs> She's like, it's me, the circus performer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For my next trick. <laughs> exactly. So where does this all come from? Look, I think when the work cover system first was introduced back in the 80s, there were a few people giving it a crack. But it's not, it's hard. Now, to be honest, it's a it's a hard system to be in. It's not fun. It's not easy. And so people aren't choosing to do that instead of going to work. You just wouldn't subject yourself to it anymore. If I'm turning up to see a personal injury lawyer, so say I'm coming to see you because you're lovely, so I would <laughs> definitely come and see you. What are some what are some good questions that people can ask in the first instance of a lawyer? Well, one of the first things you should definitely ask your lawyer is explain to me in simple words how you charge and how I know that this is going to be worthwhile for me. Uh, And you want your lawyer to say to you, never be shy about asking a question about costs. And if you're confused, you just need to keep asking questions because you only get really one chance to make a claim and you need to get as much compensation as possible to temper the impact of the injury on your life. So be really brave about asking about legal costs. I think that's always a good place to start. Also, you want to know, are you going to be my lawyer? I'm speaking to you today and you look nice and I think your name's on the wall or on this business card, but am I now going to go to someone more junior? Which can be okay because there's brilliant juniors. Uh, we have brilliant juniors at our firm, but who's who am I actually going to deal with day to day? And then the third question I think that is always a good one is who do I call if I've got questions? Like who's my first point of contact and how do you want me to communicate with you? Because being in the work cover system, things can happen all the time. You can be sent to a medical appointment by the insurer. You might have your physio stopped. You might be told you've got to try to go back to work next week. And it can all happen pretty quickly. And so you want to know who at your lawyer's office who can you call immediately about that? Or are you going to have to make an appointment and you're going to have to wait two weeks? Like, what's the process? And then the last thing, the fourth thing is you want to know a timeline. I think we've all heard stories of, oh, she was injured 15 years ago and she's finally got her compensation or they took her to court and they dragged it out for seven years and I'll come back to dragging it out. We've all heard those stories. So you want a really good timeline about how long is this going to take? Because I want to get back to work. You know, I want to know if I've got a claim and if I do, I want to start it now. So ask questions about timeline. Yes, that's very interesting. Is there an average timeline for a personal injury claim? In Victoria, if you've got that serious injury, so you might be someone who's had surgery, that usually falls into the category of you've had a serious injury and you were injured because your employer was negligent. You have six years to bring that claim, that negligence claim against your employer. But in reality, I think it would usually take between 18 months to two years to get to a conclusion of a negligence claim. And often people will say to me, but is the employee just going to drag it out? Uh, Or is the insurer just going to drag it out? Or they're just going to drag it out until I pull out. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen for two reasons. Once you're in the court system, so if you've got a work cover claim that ends up going to court for whatever reason, the court determines the timeline, not the insurer, not the employer. It's the court. And They're the big boss. Exactly. And you've got to follow what they say and you've got to follow those dates. So no, no cheeky person at an insurer can manipulate that. The other thing is, 
is that the work cover insurer, as I said, it's part of this bigger organisation called the Victorian Work Cover Authority. And they have to be what's called model litigant, which means they can't play games, they can't drag things out, they have to be a model litigant to a proceeding. And it's probably the same in many other states where the work cover system is governed by a state body, they have to be model. And mm, so I love the sound of that model litigant. I know. It's kind of like gold stars. <laughs> <laughs> and we love to sometimes throw those words back at them when they're acting perhaps in a way we don't want to see or things are taking <laughs> a little bit longer. We like to remind them of their model litigant obligations. This is very unmodel of you right now. Exactly. That's right. Model up. <laughs> People, again, it's a, it's a bit of a misapprehension that things can be dragged out maliciously. There are, there are two good structures in place that mean that that can't happen. Free Canista is the founder of Brave Legal and thank you so much for taking me through the process. If I ever end up like Kim Kardashian in a shocking RSI injury, I know who I will be calling. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Amy. And never be shy. If you're injured in the workplace, always go and make sure you seek out your entitlements because there may be there. Well, you have just heard from Bree explaining how the world of personal injury works in Victoria, but it might surprise you to learn that just one state away, things are very different. So to explain the New South Wales personal injury process, I am joined by Tim Concannon, who is a workers' compensation expert in New South Wales. Tim, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. First of all, when could I seek workers' compensation for being injured at work? Well, it's got to be work-related for a start. The term that they (laughs) use is arising out or or in the course of employment. But from a layperson's perspective, that effectively means that you don't necessarily have to be in the office when you get injured. It just has to be, have a sufficient connection to work. A lunchtime, for instance, would be potentially compensable or even a work function. And in certain circumstances, possibly a journey to and from work. What would be a situation when commuting to work could, if I fall getting off the bus or off the train, would that be something I could claim workers' compensation for? There has to be what's called a real and substantial connection to the employment. So mm-hmm. simply going back on your normal work day in the bus probably isn't enough. If you're a nurse, let's say, going to work very late at night and you're tired and run off the road, that would probably amount to a real and substantial connection. It just depends on the uh, circumstances of, of how the person was injured. So it would be a situation like as I know that I've done and and certainly I'm sure many others have done that if I'm kind of getting off the train and like, let's be honest, I'm probably looking at my phone or something and I trip on an escalator, that would be a more difficult situation because that's not as directly related to my employment. That's right. Mm. Probably in a similar vein to falling up the escalators when you're checking your phone, if I do get injured at work and, and in my workplace, but I know that I was in the wrong, that it was something that I did, do I still have a case? The simple answer is in most cases, yes. It's a a fundamentally no-fault scheme, so you don't necessarily have to prove that your employer is at fault. And if the accident is, in fact, your fault, that doesn't matter so much unless it amounts to what's called serious and willful misconduct or it's self-inflicted. I know many workplaces, I'm sure probably almost all workplaces now, have workplace health and safety policies and often sort of training modules and things that employees have to go through. I know some examples where someone may have raised concerns that a company isn't following correct work health and safety procedures. What 
can I do before that hits the fan? Like if I can see that something is really, you know, either if it's a slip hazard or something that's really dangerous or exposed electrical wires or something like that, how can I make sure that I can be listened to before things potentially turn very dangerous? Well, firstly, I think as a common sense matter, I'd be reporting it to your manager or supervisor. Mm. If you don't get any joy with that, then I'd be referring it to the health and safety officer or the trade union officer. Mm -hmm. And if you're still getting no joy at that point, Safe Work New South Wales, which is the body now responsible for safety associated with work accidents, has a confidential helpline to report dangerous uh, workplaces or issues associated with dangerous workplaces. It's called Speak Up. Uh, Have you seen, sort of in the course of your career, have you seen more and more cases of people seeking psychological damage? Is it it a relatively new phenomenon that people are claiming psychological damage from the workplace? I think, well, I've been in workers' compensation for 32 years and fair to say over the last 10 or 15, yes, I've seen an increasing number of psychological injury claims, whether that reflects the complexity of the current work environment. I see a lot of the bullying harassment type cases, which are very common these days. Mm, So we're just starting to see just more of a reckoning with treatment in the workplace and what was perhaps probably not acceptable, but if things Mm. that were sort of, I suppose, more par for the course Mm. sort of in decades gone by are no longer considered acceptable workplace conduct. Exactly. Is it also a situation that workplaces have had to adjust? So in, say, a country town example where people think, well, I don't want to speak up about this or seek workers' compensation because I feel that either I'll lose my job or it will be an extremely career-limiting move for me and it's not like I have a wealth of other organisations in my town or community that I can go and work in. How much better have workplaces gotten at responding to these things and I suppose not taking such an instantly adversarial approach to someone seeking workers' compensation? I think it would be fair to say that the larger the employer, generally the more willing they are to accept that complaints are part and parcel of doing business these days. Perhaps smaller employers less so because they might not have come across much in the way of workers' compensation claims before and might not even realise that really it should be no skin off their nose that there's a complaint or a claim being made because it doesn't come out of their pocket and comes out of the insurance company's pocket. How often when people first speak to you to get advice, how scared are they about the damage that can be caused by the between themselves and their boss or or their company? And, And how much in those initial chats do you have to try to alleviate people's fear that their future employment could be damaged, for instance, by seeking workers' compensation? Very often. But there are protections in place that workers should be aware of. For instance, that If you do lodge a workers' compensation claim and you are off work, you can't be sacked for six months. The legislation also outlines the obligations of the employer to provide suitable work and it is that anti-discrimination legislation says that it's illegal for them to discriminate a person or treat a person less favourably because they've got a disability such as you typically see from a workers' compensation injury. I think there is often a misconception about workers' comp and it's probably said in oh, like someone went and claimed workers' comp and there's a little bit of an insinuation in that that it's somewhat fraudulent or it's, or it's stretching the limits. 
How often in your career have you seen a fraudulent claim? Like why has this become a bit of a stereotype about claiming workers' compensation? Yeah, look, in my 32 years of practice, I think I don't think I've ever seen what's clearly been a fraudulent claim. Wow. I think what I commonly see is workers in a very vulnerable position with very few resources do tend sometimes to emphasise their injuries perhaps more than other people in a different situation would. But as for telling lies that could be amount to fraud, maybe one, possibly, uh, but that's about it. And, you know, we're dealing with many hundreds or thousands of claims over those 32 years. So, If I have been injured at work, what's the first step in the process of thinking this has gone beyond something that I can recover from in my own time or using sick leave? How do I begin the process when I'm aware that this is this is more serious than that? Well, firstly, you should give notice of injury to your employer. You've got to do that as soon as possible. Uh, you then should, preferably at the same time, notify the insurance company. There's a requirement that you also lodge a claim form with the insurer within six months. There's a lot of useful information as to what's associated with that process on the website of the Independent Review Office, IRO. Uh, that explains and, and talks you through that process. Also, iCare, who is the insurer for a large part of the workers' compensation scheme in New South Wales, has also got some useful information there. If a specialist needed to evaluate my case, and I imagine that my, I've, what I've been told, so correct me if I'm wrong, is that often in a case like this, if I just went to my own doctor and said, this is the injury I've suffered, my employer is entitled to have someone else who's independent assess me to confirm that my injuries are what my treating doctor says they are. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Good. <laughs> I'm happy with that. If a specialist needs to evaluate my case, who would pay for that? There is a scheme operated by the organisation, the Independent Review Office. Mm-hmm. It's called the ILARS scheme. Mm-hmm. It's effectively a legal scheme that provides free legal advice to injured workers to get advice and for them to be acted for in pursuing their workers' compensation claim, and that covers medical reports to assist your workers' compensation claim. What would you say are the most important rights that most people don't even know that they've got? Firstly, I think most people are aware of their right to claim for weekly payments for their time off, their loss of wages. They're aware of their right to claim medical expenses, but a lot of them aren't aware of their right to claim additional lump sums for what's called whole person impairment. That generally takes a little bit longer to finalise than a weekly benefits claim and a medical treatment expenses claim. Mm -hmm. So that's certainly something that a lot of people don't know when when you speak to them for the first time. There's also the right to bring what's called a a damages claim for negligence on the part of the employer in some cases. Mm. So sort of simply, negligence is where this has gone beyond an accident that happened in the workplace and negligence is when an employer or a workplace has ignored or not or sort of not fulfilled their responsibilities to provide a safe workplace. So in a way, an accident was almost inevitable. That's Pretty much right, yes. (laughs) What criteria do people have to hit in order to have a physical injury recognised? It just has to be a physical injury that's certified by your doctor 
mm-hmm. as giving rise to either a need for medical expenses or for weekly benefits. Uh, in other words, for time off work. Mm-hmm. So any physical injury that results in an incapacity for work or a need for or a, re, re, a need for a reasonably necessary medical treatment is potentially compensable. Mm. If you're talking about lump sums, you need to satisfy a higher threshold. You need to establish that you've got a whole person impairment of at least 11% in order to access that extra lump sum entitlement. So can you just talk talk me through that a little bit more? So the 11%, like what does that mean? How How is that measured? 11% whole person impairment is based on an assessment under the um, the American Medical Association medical guidelines for uh, assessment of impairment. Broadly speaking, pain doesn't get taken into account in that impairment rating. Mm. Um, In the case of a back or a neck injury, they use what's called objective signs of disability such as muscle guarding or wasting of a leg or or, or an arm would be a couple that potentially could uh, amount to getting you a higher rating of impairment. In the case of injuries like legs or arms, restriction of movement is generally the way they assess these things as well as scarring. Psychiatric impairments assess somewhat differently. In order to get lump sum compensation for a psychological injury, you need to establish a 15% whole person impairment. Okay. How do you do that from a psychological perspective? Well, they look at, they look at aspects of your daily living and they determine where you are on a severity scale in six different aspects of your activities of daily living. It's called the Psychiatric Impairment Rating Scale. Tim, thank you so much for coming on. That was an incredible amount of information and I think that you've well and truly busted a number of myths about workers' compensation and really shown the pathway that people can go to to get help and make a full recovery. So thank you very much. Thank you, Amy. It's been a pleasure. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales and with support from the Law Institute of Victoria. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Takato, audio production by Mitch Calladine, and executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.